Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today we have Dara Zykerman joining us. Dara is a local podcaster, entrepreneur, yogi, musician. I mean, it's sort of a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. And um, Dara, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure. It's nice to have someone else in the Austin sort of podcaster community come on. So um, first of all, just welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I'd just like to start off, give us a little bit of uh, sort of your background, maybe the, the bullet points of kind of where, where'd you grow up, where'd you go to school, what did you study, some of that stuff. Uh, yes, yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland, um, which taught me a lot about land use um, and the way we, we build our infrastructure and the way we interact with our environment. Um, and that led me to studying environmental science with a concentration in geography. Um, and so I was very curious about how to make a change in the world um, that was really meaningful. And I had a really incredible experience um, at an eco-village where I spoke to somebody who had done a lot of um, environmental work related to, um, I believe it was a nuclear power. And he was explaining why he left that job to live on an eco-village. And he said, I wanted something to give to people to say yes to. Instead of always saying, no, don't do this, don't do this, to make the world better, just tell them what to do to make the world better. And that really stuck with me as a a young person trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, with my career. And um, fortunately, uh, I was still in the Maryland, D.C. area, and um, there are a lot of nonprofits there, and I learned about the U.S. Green Building Council which really was giving folks something to say yes to. Um, yes to green buildings, sustainable buildings that were good for both the planet and for the people working in them. Um, so I worked there for about a dozen years, and I um, look forward to talking more about my experience there, but that was really the turning point for me in terms of um, moving from being in college to um, the working world. Uh, And then I came to a point where I needed to have a change, and I was ready to become an entrepreneur. I'd always wanted to start my own business, um, and I wanted to do it in a way that really lived my values. Um, That was very important to me. So I started Less Equals More, um, which is basically a lifestyle consultancy focused on professional organizing and minimalism, where I help people downsize, organize, and simplify their lives from many different vantage points. So I've had the opportunity to do that for the past few years. And as part of that, um, I decided to move to Austin about a year ago. Um, I was freed from you know, location, and, and, it, and I wanted another change. So coming here enabled me to live another one of my dreams, which was to live in a different city. So and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Just to back up, I'm curious, forgive my ignorance, but what is, you said eco-village, is that right? Oh, yes, eco-village. Tell me so. <laughs> about what, what an eco-village is. I'm so curious. An eco-village can be many different things, but this one was based on the principles of intentional communities. So it's a group of people coming together. Um, they don't necessarily have rules. They have norms. So the idea is that people are coming together um, on their own volition um, and participating because the the space, the place 
aligns with their values and that they can all contribute. So this eco-village in particular was in Louisa, Virginia. Um, they brought in uh, income through a few different industries. One was uh, actually weaving hammocks for Pier 1 imports. They had a tofu hut, and they would make tofu, which they would sell to local grocers, and they did book indexing. Okay. And everyone in the village had to contribute a certain number of hours of work, and that work could be related to those businesses or it could be to maintaining the village. Everyone had their own room, and they used a lot of shared resources to allow everyone to have a pretty nice standard of living, even though technically each person's income was very low. And in order to enter the eco-village, one has to actually um, put their money in escrow. Okay. And any money and any interest earned in that period of time actually goes back to the village. So you cannot use your, your money while you're there. And that way everybody is on equal footing. Oh, nice. And they, and they allow visitors to come. So I was there <laughs> for three weeks just to learn more about it as a way of, again, creating a solution uh, that was environmentally friendly, but wasn't about taking away. It was about just seeing a new way of having abundance. What? Uh, tell me about maybe the day-to-day -day experience out there in, in those three weeks. Like, what was it like? Were you, was it a culture shock at all? How did Would it take you a while to kind of get assimilated into the kind of flow of the community? Mm. Well, fortunately, they had a special area just for visitors. So it was me and several other people also visiting. So I had that sort of, um, not safety net, but environment of other people exploring this as well. Um, but it was a great learning experience because I got to do different things. I got to make tofu. I got to <laughs> make a hammock. I worked a lot in their garden. Um, and from an, uh, from the sustainability point of view, I got to see how they were able to have a higher standard of living without relying so much on you know new resources. So for example, the eco-village itself bought a bunch of used cars. Each person in the village did not have their own car, um, but if they wanted to use a car, they were allowed to take one. Um, so this was car sharing before car sharing really started. Um, so seeing all of these different solutions was really the impetus for me being there and then talking to people. So that person I referred to, you know, he gave me this one little teeny nugget of passing wisdom that ended up inspiring my interest in the organization I worked for for 12 years. And since then, I think about it all the time. And at that point, um, the environmental movement was different. So what he was saying was less common than what, you know, what is being said now. Okay. That's really interesting. So did the, was this just specifically sort of an, from an ecological standpoint, was there, there any sort of theoretical background that they were, I mean, because this sounds like a very sort of, I don't know, sort of anarcho-communism anarcho yeah. sort of situation. I mean, that's probably not the best label, but that's kind of the image that it kind of brings mm -hmm. into my mind, which this is like, this is the type of thing that I think is where we should really go with, with society. So I'm very excited to, like, this is super interesting to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I forget that sometimes that's uh, sort of the the visual idea that's right. been put in our heads about these communities because some of them are like that. 
But this community was very well organized. And I learned that some of the people who had been running it left careers as accountants and in, you know, uh, white collar jobs and had a lot of background in business and finances. So they were able to set up the community in a way that was incredibly intelligent. Um, essentially, everybody lived below the poverty line and therefore were able to get health insurance. But yet again, they had all of these resources available to them. They were able to calculate how many hours each person in the village needed to work in order to maintain the economy of the village, and it still allowed everybody to have free time. They found a way of ensuring that they had perks and they were able to grow. They built new structures in the community, and those structures were built by people in the community who had that knowledge and wherewithal. Um, so there was an incredible intelligence behind it, and there was a lot of freedom. There was no sense of like, we're all one and we all have to subscribe to this one philosophy. It was, this is how the village runs. We all can participate in making it better. Um, these are the, the norms that we have. You don't have to follow every norm exactly, you know, as, as it is. But that sort of freedom, I think, allowed people to be who they were. So you had anywhere from a retiree um, to a young person who was, you know, in their early 20s just trying to figure out what types of uh, structures they they were interested in. I remember meeting somebody who I think had just graduated college and he was like a sociology uh, major and he just wanted to understand better how, how people could work in these communities. So, yeah, it definitely did not have that feeling of... Um, that 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 the idea of some sort of commune might um, conjure up. It okay. really was an eco village. It was right. an intentional community with a very clear idea behind it, um, but not a um, but not so much so that it required people to all think the same way. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I'm not opposed. I'm. Mm -hmm. That's like this is kind of music to my ears. Mm -hmm. This is the what I I think this is the way to live. Honestly, mm -hmm. is to you know so mutual aid you know, working for one another and building a community, like that is what life is about. And especially that, you know, figuring out how, you know, distributing the work equally so that everyone has an opportunity not only to contribute, but have free time and have a space of their own. I mean, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. It would be so cool. And I also do have a sociology undergrad. Oh. So this <laughs> is particularly interesting on that level too, not only from like the sort of political economics of it you know so that's really cool i'd uh i'd be interested to visit a place like this i have mm -hmm. my family has some land and i've actually sort of like envisioned maybe one day this could be uh, you know a great use of that get a good community of, of folks together and a, a sh maybe a shared vision so i'd like to definitely hear more about you'd have to put me in maybe there's some yeah there's a group research or something yeah. i could look into yeah, there's an intentional communities conference. I'm not sure if they're still putting it on, but it's where a lot of groups like this sort of partic participate because um, the idea behind it is that it's intentional. It's an intentional community. That's really mm -hmm. cool. That's very inspiring. Mm -hmm. But um, back to sort of, I guess, your background. So wh you, where did you attend school? Uh, University of Maryland okay. in College Park. And what did you study again? Environmental science. Environmental science, policy. that's right. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But we had, it was a new program at the time because again, this was in, I went to um, 
university in 1999. Okay. Um, so there was definitely an environmental movement without a doubt, but it, it, it was different then. And um, at, at my university, this program was like pretty new. It was just a few years old. And the head of the program, who it, the person who initiated it, had um, developed it by kind of piecemealing together different programs. So you were, t so for example, my concentration was in land use, which meant that I was mainly taking geography classes. Okay. So he was finding a way of like making environmental science um, a course of study, but in order to do that, he couldn't create a four-year curriculum. He had to sort of like take what was already right. there okay. and then add around it. Um, and I really, to this day, again, he was just a figure in my life that really changed everything and then what then what was your sort of next move after after graduating so uh it's really funny <laughs> if, if you want to talk all, about it you no this is it, <laughs> it was pretty straightforward so um i had an internship i graduated in like december so i was one of those um you know early graduates and it kind of gave me a little bit more like time to to feel out what i wanted to do i continued a internship i had at the time um, so that was like part-time and I had another part-time job. Um, and that was sort of my plan as I was going to apply for jobs. At least I had that going on. But anyway, so I graduated in December knowing that I had that set up. That January, the National Building Museum had a exhibit on green buildings. I was like, oh, I've been hearing something about these. That's where I learned about the U.S. Green Building Council. And that's when I decided I wanted to work there. And, um... I I don't know if I would use the word naive, <laughs> but I really believe that if I was going to get a job that was mission-based, I was only going to apply for the jobs that I really, really wanted. So over the course of about six months, I'm at most applied to five jobs, and that's pretty, <laughs> I, it may not have been that many. Um, and one of the jobs was an internship at U.S. Green Building Council that I didn't get, um, and then a few months later, they had a posting for another position, and, and I got that position, and, you know, that's it. That's that's it. So I really, for better or worse, it worked out, I guess, but, like, I was very focused. It was like, I'm either going to work for a place that I really believe in, and I had already pinpointed this as the organization I wanted to work for, or, you know, who knows what would have happened. So that was it. So it's kind of ironic because I did notice, so we are recording, for the audience should know, that we're recording at the Central Library in downtown Austin, mm -hmm. which is USGS, did I do that? USGBC. GBC, oh sorry, yeah. God. Uh, so it, um, the building is certified, has that certification as well as, I think I saw a LEED certification as well. So LEED is the program that um, USGBC certifies buildings okay. through. So it's like USGBC is like the organization lead is the certification. So, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think that's really, that's, I just, I literally noticed that when I'm walking up to the, mm -hmm. <laughs> to the elevator just uh, as I was getting set up. So I thought that was kind of an interesting synergy there. Mm -hmm. But can you tell us a little bit about the mission of, of the organization? Yeah, so the mission has been to transform the building market to be sustainable. And I love that mission because it showed that there is a pathway to get from where we are to a better place. Right. And um, specifically, it looked at the triple bottom line, social, economic, and environment. 
And I thought that was very important too, because sometimes in the environmental movement, people get lost in there. And it makes it difficult for others to understand why we're fighting so hard for the environment, because aren't people important too? <laughs> right. And how can we do all of this if we're not paying attention to the economics? We could have the best intentions, but if they're not realistic, what good is that? Um, so that, that was the lens through which USGBC set out to make a difference. Green buildings were around before USGBC was created, but they realized that there was this new thing called greenwashing that was popping up where um, businesses would use the environment, people's concern about the environment to their advantage, but not really make any of the changes. So greenwashing is when you say, oh, look at us, we're so sustainable, but you're really not. And USGBC sought to combat that in a very nice way, which was to say, well, we're going to just create a standard created by architects, engineers, construction uh, builders, all the people who really know about buildings. Kind of the stakeholders, too. Exactly. Yeah. Like, we're all going to get together through a consensus-based process to develop a standard that we can all say, hey, if this building meets these requirements, it's actually a green building. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that there aren't green buildings out there that aren't certified, um, but it just means as a person of the public or a government agency, you'd have to dig a lot deeper. Here we've kind of created a shorthand, or USGBC created a shorthand. Um, so that's pretty much <laughs> the purpose of the organization, at least at the time that I started working there. Can you go into, and you, even if it's the broad strokes of sort of what, what constitutes, like what are the sort of metrics or criteria that fit in under the certification or for something to be considered a green building just in general? Yeah, so... And feel free to, you can dig in. <laughs> well, I'm a little rusty. As much as you want, it's, but yeah. it's been a while. <laughs> right. um, but the main lead program is for new construction and major innovations of buildings, and it looks at the site on, on which the building is built, so it's taking into consideration uh, its location, because if you have a super sustainable building out so far away that everyone has to get into a single occupancy vehicle and drive to it, you might question whether or not that building is that green, right? Oh, good. good and um, when you build a building, you're affecting the land that it's on and the habitat. Um, so it's taking a look at the land, and then um, within the building, it's water usage, energy usage, and the materials and resources that are used to create it. And those affect the indoor environmental quality. So that gets back to the people part of this, um, that if people are in a building and they don't feel good because of what's in the building, what, what's the point? Right. Um, and I was fortunate enough to work in a green building. Eventually, we got our own. <laughs> and um, what a difference does that make? You got daylight. You can breathe easy. Um, the materials in the in the building work. You know you're saving energy. You're saving water. Um, and you're in a place where you can get to it easily. So um, I, for, I have firsthand experience in a green building. And as you could see, uh, being in this library, there's something very fresh about it. It feels different than probably other libraries you've been to in Austin. So um, that's that's basically what it looks at. LEED then developed many different um, associated rating systems because if you're going to transform the building market, if you're going to transform buildings, 
you have to look at all elements of buildings. So we looked at the operations and maintenance of existing buildings, um, commercial interiors. So, for example, our office was in a much larger building. We didn't have our own building, but we we bit we built out our tenant space to be LEED certified. Um, we also have LEED for Homes, or have, I keep saying we, <laughs> I'm an alumni at this point, but um, LEED for Homes. And then the program I spent the most time with was LEED for Neighborhood Development. So that's where all of those location um, elements were really emphasized. Green building and green infrastructure was definitely a part of it, but we looked at smart growth, new urbanism as ways to develop a, um, a neighborhood. And to kind of tie the story around, <laughs> that's the program I worked on for several several years there, and we had pilot tested it first. And one of our first pilot projects was uh, Mueller, which is, uh, as you know, just north of the city. Um, and so coming here to Austin was really fulfilling to actually be in, in Mueller and get to see that neighborhood built. Because when I was at U.S. Green Building Council, it was still in its planning phase. Oh, wow. So That's to cool. see, you know, this lead for neighborhood development pilot project in person where I now live um, was, you know, incredibly satisfying. That's very cool. A nice little synergy. So yeah. is that kind of what first drew you to Austin or? No, no. Like the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to move out west. So my reasons for moving to Austin are sort of almost silly. <laughs> I mean, they're really basic. I just wanted lower cost of living, and I've been here. I really like it. Yeah. The culture works for me. I mean, really just the basic reasons why someone might move somewhere. So it's turned out quite well for me. But I knew that it was a big green building city, too. In fact, U.S. Green Building Council's first conference was in Austin. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was before I started working there, but it's the first one. That's that's really cool. Um, so let's see. Oh, so I feel like am I mistaken that this the lead certification also has now maybe extended to like appliances or I feel maybe computer. I feel like I've seen it elsewhere, I and it's, I, I just can't quite place it. Yeah, it can shed a little bit of light on that. Um, as we as U.S. Green Building Council grew, it developed a sort of sister arm, which is the Green Building Certification Institute. Um, which I think has expanded even further since I left there. Um, but really what we had done in the process of creating LEED was develop the ability to certify to a standard. Um, so GBCI um, now certifies many different complementary rating systems, rating systems that USGBC may not have developed, um, but that sort of relate to, to the work that that they were doing so that may have been where else where you've seen other things related to usgbc but in terms of lead it's still specifically it building is about okay. buildings gotcha mm -hmm. i feel like it's maybe i just i don't <laughs> know <laughs> i know i've seen it elsewhere so it's mm -hmm. interesting but um i guess is there anything else maybe that you had a particular passion for while you worked there or like maybe some specifics that you could go into if, if not that's fine um, not in particular, but I would, I would add that in just to transition a little bit from different aspects of my life, one of the things I liked best about working there and about our mission was that we were challenging the status quo. I mean, it really goes back to that, um, and that there's a better way 
of living your life. But you have to sometimes take a stand. And it might not be the most popular stand. Um, but if you work with people, and again, at USGBC, all of this was consensus-based. So you're working with people through very difficult issues that where we all have really strong opinions, and you're bringing people together. You're not being divisive. Right. And you're trying to find common ground. But you're, again, but you're still sticking to a mission and trying to be clear on that. And that's something that I thought about a lot while I was there and got to experience firsthand while I was there and that I took with me when I left. I do think, it. you know, you mentioned earlier that having giving people something to, I forget the way you describe it. To say yes to. To say yes to. <laughs> I, that is such a great, I guess, paradigm to think about this sort of thing. And because I think oftentimes, and not only just with, you know, sort of ecology, but also with more kind of like, I don't know, sort of left-wing movements is it's always like, no, you have to do, it's, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's very like, can be regimented. And so it is nice to, that people are thinking in a more positive messaging, you know what I mean? Yeah. I always think about conversations I had when I was a lot younger, kind of coming into all of this. And I saw that there was this sentiment that if you were into the environment or you're a vegetarian or what have you, that you wanted everybody to like live in a little cabin in the woods, <laughs> right? Like that you just completely give up everything that we've developed over the years. You kind of have your little Walden in the woods. And that was never how I thought about it. It was just, it was more about like, wait a second, why would I want to breathe in pollution? <laughs> right. Like, that doesn't seem like something I can really, I want to defend. I understand it. So, like, let's talk about the things that really aren't working. And we can keep some of the things that are working. It doesn't mean we can't, you know, ever buy a new pair of jeans. You know what I mean? Like, it's the idea that it has to be sort of one or the other is what I feel like I'm constantly combating. Um, Or the idea that if you are a vegetarian, that means that you hate meat eaters. I don't. I have a reason why I'm a vegetarian. I thought about it. I made a decision. Um, it doesn't mean I don't respect other people's decisions. Um, so you have to start from a place of respect and understanding and just trying to work together to find both that common ground but an exchange of ideas and acceptance that not everyone's going to agree, and they don't have to. They don't have to. So that's, that's generally been my perspective. Nice. I think that's that's a great perspective that I think we can all learn to, and I, especially now in the sort of very contentious climate we're mm-hmm. in. But yeah, it is interesting that I don't know. There is feels like there is sort of a backlash against all of that. It's so weird to me because mm-hmm. um, even um, so, my family has some land about an hour and a half to the southeast of Austin, mm-hmm. and I mean they've done it's been drilled on. It's like they've done fracking, all of this stuff, and. <laughs> You know, there's been earthquakes in Texas that you sort of never used to hear about. So it's Mm -hmm. like I'm talking to my dad and he, of course, is (laughs) not quite on board, let's Mm say. Um, So it's just weird to see how resistant people can be to things that sort of challenge, I guess, the sort of status quo like you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're all... We're all learning here. Nobody, nobody's an expert in anything. So we all, all have to walk into it. You know, in Buddhism, they call it beginner's mind. We all have beginner's mind here. No one's done this before. Um, so let's just, let's just try our best and not 
hate on each other for having a, d- a different opinion about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, it's funny, and especially in the context of like we're in the Thanksgiving season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was reading on Twitter, there were so many kind of, I mean, some of them were sad, to be honest, but some of them were quite funny and amusing people posting about their families and sort of this, especially now with the whole Trump and mm-hmm. phenomenon, I think that has really sort of exacerbated a lot of the mm-hmm. kind of divisions within families. And it's pretty, mm-hmm. it was kind of funny. Yeah watching that kind of go on. <laughs> uh, but um, let's go ahead. We'll segue into a little bit more about what you're doing now. And I will admit that I am like probably the poster child for someone that that needs your services. Because, <laughs> uh, you would like, you would probably pass out if you saw no. my house. No, it's good. I tell people it's like I'm a doctor. Like you're not going to show me anything I haven't seen before. You just come in your lab coat. You're like, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, re- it really is like that. And sometimes I get more excited when it, things look more, we'll call it, uh, complicated <laughs> than others. I have a, ve- I have a very complicated <laughs> That's fun um, for me. arrangement at home, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely a minimalist in aesthetic but mm-hmm. not when it comes to organization. I am the least organized person you've mm-hmm. probably ever met. <laughs> well, I, well, first of all, that's probably not true. <laughs> You'd be surprised <laughs> who I've met. Um, but the second thing is, I'm actually glad that you said this specifically. You said, I'm a minimalist in terms of aesthetic. And I think that's gotten really, really lost in the conversation about minimalism and simple living. Because a lot of what is posted... <laughs> on social media and on websites is the aesthetic of minimalism, um, which I enjoy and I appreciate, um, but that is very different than what I think of when I think of minimalism. Right. Um, And so making that (laughs) distinction, I think, is a really important thing to do, Um, in part because for some people, the aesthetic of minimalism is impossible and is a barrier to actually simplifying their lives. For you, it's easy, but it's the other stuff you need some help with. So we're all kind of somewhere in that in that zone and, and working through it. Because I, I do find myself, I don't, I don't think that I'm necessarily messy. Like I'm not dirty, but mm-hmm. I'm lazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And things, it's easy to get my room or bathroom or what any, mm-hmm. you know, anything, car, mm-hmm. to become cluttered. And my excuse or rationale or whatever mental gymnastics I'm doing Mm -hmm. is that I don't want to take the investment of time into making like, I don't know, something as simple as making my bed in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Although I do, so I do feel like there is some benefit, you know what I mean? What is the old saying? Like cluttered mind, cluttered desk, cluttered cluttered mind, mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's so true. Mm Mm-hmm. In, in some respects, but at the same time, I like wrestle with, I mean, sometimes I'm just trying to make it through the day, to be <laughs> honest. You're right. Um, well, I would like to speak to a couple of points that you made. Um, one is about being lazy. <laughs> and I say that because I'm very lazy. And my laziness is the thing that has made me an incredibly efficient person. Because I okay. never want to spend time doing something that I don't want to do. So I've designed my life to minimize to the nth degree the stuff that I don't want to do. And when I do those things, I hate every second of it <laughs> because I'd always rather sit and stare at a blank wall than do something I don't want to do. So I would say that your laziness can actually be an incredible <laughs> asset 
Um, because what it helps one do is create systems for your life that are easy to maintain. So you have to do some trial and some trial and error there. Like you test different systems. Um, but once you have those systems in place, suddenly everything becomes easy. And a, a kind of a universal one that I think people can relate to is auto pay for bills, right? You could get your mail in, lose it, try to figure out how to organize it, get a stamp, write the check, da da da, da. Or you could do something in between where you, some of it is on paper, some of it you're going into your account, or you could literally put everything on auto pay. And I'm not saying that that's the best solution for everyone, but it's a perfect example of how a lazy person <laughs> can take invest a little bit of time to set up their life so that they're not you know, wasting it on things they don't want. So that's one point. The other point I wanted to make was about making your bed. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to be an incredible advocate of bed making. There are very few routines that I would say are good for everybody, but I do think bed making is one of them. Um, first, how you make your bed is up to you. I am a little crazy about it. I like the tucked corners oh, nice. and the whole thing. But I also don't have extra things on my bed. I have a sheet and two pillows and that's it, right? Um, so it, I've also set up my life. So making my bed is very easy. Um, and I'm doing it the way that I want to do. And I do it every single morning. And every single morning I feel ready and excited for the day. Even if I'm stressing about certain things, I feel fresh. I'm ready to go. I can make things happen. Um, so I actually do think making your bed is really important. But you don't have to tuck in the corners of your sheets. <laughs> you could determine, you know what, making my bed means taking off anything from the bed that shouldn't be there and just like throwing the comforter over it. Take you, hopefully, only a few seconds <laughs> right. to do that, right? Okay. Um, and it's an act of control of your own life because I think a lot of why folks become either disorganized or have too much stuff, it's actually them giving up control of their own lives and saying things are just crazy and this is just how it is and like, oh, I need this and I need that, but they're not really thinking it through. And um, every time that we can ground ourselves in that control that like everything in my home is mine, it's my choice to have it here, it's my choice where it is, then um, we're less likely to succumb to, you know, in the moment impulses. I think one of my biggest challenges to, and again, it's with the accumulation of things and specifically when it comes to things that are, you know, relatively important, let's say it's like, I don't know, a paperwork, like mm. how do you deal with things like that? Because to me, I've, to me, that's the biggest challenge is important things that I feel like I might need in the future. And I'm always worried about if I, what am I going to do if I don't have this like tax return from 2016 mm -hmm. like how do you address that sort of thing because I think to me that's the biggest thing that you wind up with just these little odds and ends here and there and like mm -hmm. after five years you've accumulated like a giant stack mm -hmm. of stuff and I like go to open my closet and they're <laughs> like a inundated with, with stuff, yeah <laughs> well it speaks to a few things um one goes back to systems right so um everybody should have a folder called old tax returns <laughs> and they should put all their old tax returns in it and they should have one other folder that has the year the current year 
and they should put anything that relates to the current year in that folder. So you just need to get yourself get two a filing file cabinet, folders, right? Or a filing even, cabinet. Even just let's start with folders. <laughs> just get or start a box, small, right? you know, like yeah. <laughs> and then label it. Like those are your step one and step two, and then put the papers in it. And don't. Fr- this is the hard step, which is don't forget about it. Um, so so that's a that's part of it is setting up that system, and the other part is maintaining. So every time I finish my tax return, I put that new tax return in my, I'm glad you mentioned taxes because it's actually an easy example to use. I take, you know, after I finish the tax return, then it goes in my old tax returns folder and then I pull out the oldest one and shred that. That's maintenance. (laughs) Super easy when you do it every single year. Right. Right? So you're basically replicating that process with everything else. Um, I find that ca- like using one's calendar to just simply set up times for maintenance of paperwork or other things around the home is really effective because then it's just a thing that you're going to do. Oh, yeah. every, you know, Thanksgiving I go through my paperwork and you'll take out a bunch of stuff you don't need. You'll rediscover some exciting things. You'll remember <laughs> some things. And then in an hour, it's done. Yeah. And there's a little bit of accountability element oh, there, yes. too. Oh, yes. Major accountability. And if you're not good at keeping yourself accountable, you just got to find somebody who is. That's funny. Yeah. This reminds me to another, like, this is telltale, but a great example for you would be, like, um, I hate washing dishes, too, mm-hmm. or, like, letting them queue up in the sink, which I know a lot of people hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just, I don't know. It's kind of that same mindset you were saying of, like, if when you, once you do it incrementally, it's less like just having that sort of approach to it rather than like that sense of lack of control. Mm-hmm. And oh man, this, you're so diagnosing me so perfectly <laughs> here. It's amazing. If it makes you feel any better, <laughs> I hate washing dishes usually, not always, but usually too. But what I've done is like broken that down. Why do I not like washing dishes? Well, because it feels like I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm just doing the same thing over and over again, right? So I don't like that about it. Um, I don't like that my hands get kind of dry (laughs) when I wash them. Um, I would rather be doing something else. So I've kind of acknowledged that with myself. I've had that conversation. And then I've thought, well, if I don't do my dishes, what's going to happen? I might get bugs in my house. I would way rather do dishes than ever see a cockroach. Okay, my trade-off is really clear. <laughs> Got it, you know? And so every time I wash my dishes now, I just try to use it as a time to listen to music, relax, um, but not harbor that frustration or annoyance right. because I've already made the decision consciously, not because I think I should wash them, but gotcha. because I want to wash them. Okay. All even right. though I kind of don't. <laughs> So, and you don't have to necessarily answer this if you don't want to, but is this something that you have embraced? Is this like a lifelong thing that you embraced? Did you, were you kind of raised in that environment or is it something you sort of eventually kind of came to? Hmm. Yeah. So I would say that I wasn't raised this way, but I was raised with a couple of values that I think were helpful. One, that um, my relationships with people were very important, the close family Um, friendships were really revered um, in my family. So the idea that people are the most important thing, I think actually is the cornerstone of minimalism in many ways, because once you get your priorities straight, it's a lot easier not to buy something. 
to be really frank about it. Um, the second value was that my um, family was very um, financially conscious. My dad and mom talked about money. It wasn't this hidden thing that we didn't talk about. Um, I also saw the stress that they experienced, always feeling like they were keeping up. I could tell that they wanted to have more than what they did, um, what they did have, but at the same time um, were very responsible about it. They were never going into debt. They were always teaching us as they went along why they made decisions that they made. And I think that they did a really good job of balancing um, financial responsibility and education and also showing us that, hey, we, we all those times we said no to things and then we didn't do something, that's why we could do this one special thing now. And so what that showed me, um, amongst other experiences in my life, was that if you get everything that you want, nothing is special. And I had a lot of special in my life, even though I we you know I grew up in a middle class household. That th that that was the emphasis. So as just a really easy example, we never went out to eat. So many of my friends and their families would go out to eat. They would order in. Never. My mom always made us food. But every once in a while. For some very special reason, we would go out to eat. So even to this day, I'm, you know, 37 now, going out to eat at like a nice restaurant to me is such a big deal. And I can afford it. I've been able to afford it for a long time. But like I was taught that those things are special. And that's how I view minimalism is not not having things. It's not having everything you want all the time so that when you do get it, Oh my goodness, are you going to enjoy it? I like I like that <clears throat> idea. I feel like that is that's kind of the trap of the psychology of it, right? Is yeah, it's that sort of ingrained in us that sort of kind of um it's the instant gratification element of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of this is what that where my mind goes. No, I'm glad that you brought that up cuz I was talking to some folks about this recently and how um we, we are so focused on instant gratification, and I think because I actually like delayed gratification sometimes, that's made this process easier for, for me personally, and it's something that I like to educate people on um, because it's immensely satisfying. Um, so instant gratification is a big hurdle. But getting back to your question, those were all the values. That's all the things I grew up with. But... Um, it also showed me that I didn't want that lifestyle. I didn't want to live in the suburbs. Um, I'm not a particularly traditional person. Um, I saw that people, even in my family, would just accumulate things because it was easy, like everybody else, n no different. And I found that I had a proclivity toward organization, systems, and efficiency. That's just the way my mind worked. And I started to do that for friends and family, and they, I started to see how much they appreciated it. I thought, huh. I guess I have a thing that not, not everybody else has. Awesome. I can help them. And then I learned more and more about sustainability. And I was like, wait a second. This thing that I kind of like to do, this is like a solution for so many of our environmental problems. It's our, you know, overconsumption that's, you know, created them. Huh, that's interesting. And then I started to just hone in on my personal philosophy around those ideas until I've gotten to a point now where... Um, just, just to bring it back to working at U.S. Green Building Council, 
I had an office, which, as you might imagine, didn't have anything in it. <laughs> People would come by and say, oh, are you, are you leaving? Did you get a different job? No, this is just my <laughs> But I did have That's one fine. thing on my board for a little while, which was a fortune cookie um, that had the famous Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. And it's like I read that every day as like this sort of, you know, okay, you know, this is my job and I really love this. Affirmation sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, kind of an affirmation. Then I realized that it was actually instructing me to do something new, which was to leave my job and um, build a, a, a business around who I am, that I had figured out all of these like keys and, and back doors and roots and, and um, philosophies and all of these things to make life really, really simple, easy, peaceful, um, and leave myself room to be creative and do whatever I wanted to do to give me control over my life. And I had like this skill set I had built about being organized and efficient. This was the contribution that I had. So shouldn't my business just be how to, how to live the way that I figured out to live um, where, where you can have all of those things um, that you want. And I knew that that meant not um, to have, or to encourage people to be like me specifically. I'm talking about it in obviously the more general sense that um, each person is very different. Everyone has a different personality and that should be respected. And I just use the word should, but really the point <laughs> is, don't use the word should. You shouldn't be anything. But I wanted to be that sort of like eco-village, if you will, as a person and show people, hey, this is something you could say yes to. Do it your way. This isn't a super um, specific um, yeah. way of doing it. But like I can give you all of the tools. In fact, I could come into your home, <laughs> help you do it like one-on-one, -on -one, and hopefully you'll learn a lot along the way and then you can maintain it yourself. So that's that's how I... I gave birth to my business, if you will. That's really cool. Um, and so it's amazing that you were able to leverage that into something that I think is really, it's it's very like, it sounds like a great niche in the market, but also something that I think contributes to people's lives as well, like in a positive sense too. Mm -hmm. And not only just as a, like a, you know, a, sort of a transactional relationship, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I think that's really... Yeah really inspiring. Yeah, as somebody who'd worked on kind of like the global scale, so to speak, um, to work one-on-one -on -one with folks has been incredibly gratifying for me. And I just really enjoy hearing everyone's stories. And it's actually taught me a tremendous amount. I mean, I certainly started the business thinking I knew how to teach everyone everything and then learned a lot. And <laughs> <laughs> now have more to teach because I've, I've seen just going back to different personalities, like it's about designing your life for, for yourself where you're not basing it off of shoulds. Right. And you're accepting like, hey, I'm the kind of person who likes a minimalist aesthetic, <laughs> but what I'm having trouble with is creating a system that I can maintain. Things get out of control so easily, and you know what? I, at that point, I don't even care. Okay, well, that's a great starting place. You know yourself really well. <laughs> oh, you just nailed me. Just boom. <laughs> um, and then the next question I would ask you, or really the first question I'll ask you is like, okay, well, what do you care about in life? What are your goals? What are your priorities? Because my guess is if we wrote a list of what those goals were, what those values were, what those priorities, what your short-term, long-term, and then looked at 
your home, I'm going to guess they're not aligned. There's probably some overlap, Definitely. like your podcasting <laughs> equipment, right? But like, it's probably not aligned. That if you were to be, you know, sending your kid off on a trip, you know, what would you want to pack in their bag, knowing what you know about them and wanting to care for them? So, like, you have to kind of design your home to be like your 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 tool bag um, for your life, and uh, so that has to mirror your your goals. Interesting. Yeah, because I think for my, in my own psychology, it is, I almost am always trying to be overprepared because mm. I feel like things can get so chaotic and I always want to like have every single contingency mm -hmm. that could possibly go wrong. So that I think is also part of that, you know, I don't want to let go of that, whatever, like I said, the tax return, but I mean, mm -hmm. there's a million different examples of that. That I'm like, oh, I don't yeah. want to. <laughs> what if I need this? Yeah, you know the, what I mean? the what if I need this one day? <laughs> if I could have a nickel for every uh, time I heard right? that. Right, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what you're talking about is risk, right? So I would not want to risk. I love that we're talking about taxes. My dad actually worked <laughs> for the IRS. So um, I would not want to risk an audit where I was not prepared. Right. To me, that is not worth the risk, especially since all I have to do is save some papers. But would I be willing to risk not having the, you know, best type of knife in my kitchen in case I wanted to cut a butternut squash? <laughs> mm, you know, like, it'd be nice to have the right one, but, like, that's a risk I'm willing to, okay. right? So it's risk, it's trade-offs. Um, so I understand what you're saying, and a lot of people um, think that way, and it's great. It's great to think ahead. That's a really useful skill you should keep. But the idea is that think it through to like one more step, which is, okay, well, then what's the risk? What am I actually afraid is going to happen? And is that worth keeping this yeah. item because of it? And is it worth like sort of crippling yourself with this? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And can I borrow, you know, this, this is the thing that I love the most. We're like lose, or I don't love this part, but the solution is that we're losing our creativity by having a perfect thing for every situation. Oh, okay. No one's MacGyvering anything anymore <laughs> because you can get exactly the, That's true. you know, it's always like we figured out how to make a mattress. Like we've made the best po possible mattress that you've ever seen. Like, it's just like, okay, that's great. But like, you just need to like sleep on something relatively comfortable. So, um, I, I want to restore people's faith in themselves to be creative that sometimes saving 30 seconds a minute, sometimes even saving, you know, much longer than that isn't worth it if it means that you need to have a different gadget for everything when through your own creativity, you can come up with a better solution or a reasonable solution. Right. And then tying that kind of idea too into, especially now it's like you can have all of that stuff delivered to your house yes. <laughs> at any time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's the kind of double-edged sword, right? right? Like, you don't have to worry about not having things as much because you could get it quickly. Yeah. But it's also so easy to get that sometimes we circumvent the creative process in our own lives and kind of give in too easily to to comfort and convenience. Oh, that's so interesting. It's such an alluring thing too. It's very seductive, mm -hmm. right? God, I feel like, oh, you're... <laughs> Well, so th this this kind of loops around. To I'm having a moment of clarity. I think. <laughs> oh, this is good. This is good. Um, well, here here's one other one. Like, um, well, I I'm, I don't want to digress 
No, go ahead. This is what the pod, the podcast is all about <sighs> digression. Um, <laughs> now I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, so we were talking about convenience. Yeah. So convenience is what got us into a lot of these environmental problems that we're having right now, that we were seeking to be the best in everything, um, making the best this, making the best that, making life more convenient for ourselves, which has been great. Um, but it's really come at a cost. And every step of the way, we need to recognize that cost. And so the way that I handle that is by kind of having a just-say-no policy. We're, we're so accustomed to it that it's always about always saying yes and then backstepping and saying like, well, okay, maybe I don't really need that extra coat, uh, but it's on sale. Maybe I should get it. Uh, I don't know. But we're kind of starting from from deciding to do it in the first place, deciding to buy the item. Okay, right. And then or to acquire it. Reverse engineering our justification exactly. for it. Exactly. Right? And sometimes we'll talk ourselves out of it, and sometimes yeah, we'll justify it. We're amazing rationalizers. So I Guilty do the opposite. As well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you ever want to, yeah, it's like kind of impressive how intelligent people become when they're rationalizing right. something. Um, but I, but I do the opposite. I say, you know, we come from this culture of convenience. We come from a place of abundance here in the U.S. My answer is always no. I have to. I have to do the opposite to convince myself to get something, and um, it's been highly effective. But it is a completely different mindset. If someone tries to hand me something, it's like, no, get that away from me. <laughs> and then I might be like, oh, okay, let me. I'll look at it. You know, <laughs> like, is there a really like the compelling argument has to happen the opposite way? Interesting. Uh, you, you know what this reminds me of is, um, and I, I'm kind of a philosophy nerd, but there's a French philosopher, uh, Lacan, mm-hmm. and he has the idea of the objet petit a, which is the unfulfillable object of desire. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that psychology is also related to this too, because it's the dopamine rush that you get from buying something new. Mm-hmm. Or what you know what I mean? Consume, consuming something. There's it's an addict. It's like an, it, it is an addiction mm-hmm. because you're always and then you're always trying to fulfill that unfulfillable mm-hmm. thing instead of like stepping back and realizing, okay, wait, <laughs> what am I doing? I'm just constantly chasing this. You know, it's like almost chasing like a high. chasing a high. Really, mm-hmm. exactly. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it speaks to the, the question of, like, can stuff make you happy, right? And if you subscribe to the, the theory of the hedonic treadmill, oh, we man. all have our... Running so hard on that right Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all have our, uh, our set points of happiness. Yeah. And buying something that you really like will spike it. It's not that you're not feeling something good. You are. And it's very real and it's very palpable. It's just that it's, it's not long-lasting. It's, you're going to eventually return to your you know, general status of happiness. And right. yes, regressing can, to the mean. I regress, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that can change a little bit through the course of your life. And, um, you know, I, I always think about the example of getting a promotion, you know, and like the rush you feel like you really wanted this promotion. You got the promotion. Oh, my God. Like it's <laughs> life changing because you're you're continuing to be in that job. Right. Like it's not the singular event. Um, but then it's just a job. 
Right. And then you have to worry about the next promotion <laughs> or you actually have to do the job and maybe it's really stressful. Uh, right. Oh, God, this is my complaint about the job hunt is it always feels like I'm chasing a job, but I know that I won't like it when I do get it. It's mm-hmm. so funny. Yeah. And you'll like getting it. Yeah. That feeling of yeah, success. Yeah, there's simulation there. But. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so we're always chasing these highs, but we know that the end result is that none of this is really going to make us that happy. Now, if I can loop this back, though, because <laughs> I want to admit something. I don't want you to think that I'm like, you know, I never bought anything. This is my admission. <laughs> so it goes back to the idea of special and treats and really getting to enjoy the pleasures of life. And I think that when we talk about minimalism, people see it as this really austere idea, and it's about not having Um, And I don't believe that that's true at all. I think it's just a different version of abundance. So, but it's, but it's very clear headed. So my example is that I love tea. I love tea so much. I love different types of tea. I drink it every day. I get up in the morning after I make my bed. (laughs) Actually, while I'm making my bed, the tea is going. It's like a whole system. It's very, like a lot of positive reinforcement. So I love tea so much. So I even as an incredibly frugal person, will spend the money on good quality, organic, you know, fair trade, high quality, loose leaf tea. And I purchased for myself an incredibly expensive, high tech electronic tea kettle that has a little basket that lowers into the water heated to just the right temperature (laughs) and you get to push a button for what type of tea if you know anything about tea it's like you know different temperatures and times depending on if it's black or oolong or green or if it's an herbal tisan um it was very expensive (laughs) it's slightly embarrassing sometimes even when people come over because i'm like promoting this minimalist idea but the point is um I enjoy it so much every day because it's not clouded by everything else. I don't have things like that. So having that one thing allows me to to really enjoy. And I'm only saying that because I want to speak to this idea that like things can make us happy or not happy. Does money It's true. Those things in the long run don't really make us happy. Um, but I, I think it's fair to admit that like, there are some things, if they're really the right things that can elevate us a little bit, but knowing what those things are and letting them elevate us, that's really hard to do. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think that is, that's a great way to sort of, I think, wrap things up. I mean, I feel like we could probably have three podcasts, (laughs) um, to discuss all of the things you're doing. But I want to give you the opportunity. We have to get you because you host your podcast. I want you to plug <laughs> plug your business, plug all of the things, all the social media websites, whatever you have that you're willing and want to share. And then definitely send me if you have anything that you want, because I can add in the show notes to mm-hmm. anything, any links or anything like that. Um, Thank you so much. For I sure. appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, this is, again, mm-hmm. I want to support uh, the community of podcasters here in Austin and um, you know, obviously appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And so want to amplify that signal as much as possible. Much appreciated. So my business is called Less Equals More, and my website is Why Less Equals More. So 
H-Y, less equals more.com. And on my website, you can find my um, blog. I publish it twice a month, and I talk about a lot of the types of things we talked about here today. Um, and I also publish a podcast once a week. It's called Words for Wednesday. It's um, all in five minutes or less every Wednesday, and it's a moment to recenter and to reflect um, and we, I talk about mindfulness, philosophy, and creativity. And you might be wondering, <laughs> why would you make a podcast about that if you're a minimalist and you're a professional organizer? The point of the podcast is to show that when you clear your space of the things that clutter it, you have time to reflect on these bigger and broader topics and to enrich your life with things that you find to be important. Um, so that's, a, that's another thing that you could find on my website. Of course, I have a Facebook page under the same name, and um, I also have a website, darazykerman.com, um, that hosts some of my um, music and mentions my work with yoga. Um, because again, when you are a minimalist, you have room to do all of these other things um, because you're really focused on what your goals and priorities are. So I'm not saying that I'm uh, that you should do those things. I'm saying find the things that really create meaning in your life. Um, the last thing I'd like to plug, because um, this is a local podcast, <laughs> I have a meetup group called Meaningful Minimalism. And uh, we got started um, just less than a year ago, but it's really grown. Um, and it aims to create community around minimalism because downsizing, organizing, all of these things can feel like very solitary experiences that we get lost in. Yeah, overwhelming, I think, too. Where do I start? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Especially someone like me, it's like... Uh... <laughs> yeah, but we've all had these varied experiences, and I find that everyone has a tip, a trick, an idea, an encouragement. Um, and so creating community around something that really doesn't have community... Um, was something that I saw, you know, this was a missing thing that I think needed to be filled. So it's called Meaningful Minimalism. It's part of, you know, you can find it on meetup.com um, if you're in the Austin area. If not, still reach out anyway, and we'll find a way to make a bigger community. So thank you. Awesome. Well, Dara, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'd love to have you back on to discuss some of your other work, but <laughs> thank you. Uh, this, was, this was so much fun, and I definitely learned a lot, and it's just thanks again. No problem. Thank you. All right. This is Podcast with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week.